I'm Chris Cutler. This is Probes number 37. If any single invention could be said to have ushered in the electronic age, a good contender would be the thermionic valve. It made radio, television, radar, long-distance telephone communication, public address systems and the first generation of computers possible, as well as being a vital component in almost every electronic device before it was displaced by the transistor in the 1960s. To the world of music, the valve offered not only an infinitely controllable source of pitch creation, but more importantly, for the first time, the power of non-acoustic amplification. And amplification would change everything, not least because it completely overturned the natural order of acoustics, allowing sounds too small to hear and signals too weak to carry to stand their ground against anything the non-electric world could raise against them. In an acoustical ecology, every instrument has its natural span of amplitude, and these limits are absolute. No trumpet can play more quietly than a clavichord, and no harp can rise above a wind quintet. What we call orchestration is the recognition and negotiation of these constraints, and they were understood to be constraints that no music could escape. Until the invention by Lee de Forest of the first valve amplifier in 1912. After that you could whisper against an orchestra and still have no problem being heard. All an amplifier requires is an input and an output. That usually means a microphone and a loudspeaker, both of which, in a tidy demonstration of evolution in action, predate the amplifier itself. Indeed, The decisive prototype of the microphone was invented several times in a single year, 1876, by Emil Berliner and Thomas Edison in America and David Edward Hughes in the United Kingdom. Hughes gave his invention to the world while Edison and Berliner fought over the patent rights. But all their designs were based on the way that loosely packed carbon granules compress and relax in response to variations in pressure. In this case, pressure exerted by a diaphragm that was mechanically vibrating in sympathy with moving air. Every variation in granule compression causes a parallel change in electrical conduction, thus converting kinetic energy into electrical energy. And once converted, the electrical data produced is subject not to acoustic but electrical laws through which it may be modified or made to travel silently through wires before eventually being reconverted back into sound. All you need is a battery to provide the flow of electrons. Further refinements, made in 1886 by Thomas Edison, led to the design that then went on to power the world's telephone mouthpieces for the next hundred years. Please hold. I'm just putting you through now, caller. Loudspeakers, on the other hand, 
had to pass through many mutations before finally arriving in 1921 at a satisfactory basic architecture, although that didn't impede the appearance of public address systems more than a decade earlier. By 1910, for instance, the automatic electric company, whose main business was telephony, had unveiled its automatic enunciator, a mini-public address system that was designed for use in department stores, factories, railway stations and at outdoor events. In 1912, they installed 72 speaker horns set out in pairs at 40-foot intervals to broadcast speech and music at a water carnival in Chicago. They also wired the Chicago baseball stadium, and a similar array was installed in Stockholm for the 1912 Olympics. All of these systems depended on large directional acoustic horns, whose size and shape determined the amount of amplification that could be achieved, and whose tone was narrow and metallic and decidedly lo-fi. But even at this primitive stage of development, the new electrical logic created disturbing existential anomalies as it simultaneously rescaled space and multiplied locations, by which I mean loudspeakers, by their nature, extend the horizon of acoustic sounds beyond their natural limits and allow them to originate, impossibly, in many separate locations at once. We have in this party two things, a political party and a body of social reform. In 1919, President Woodrow Wilson used a standard 25-watt Magnavox PA system to address 50,000 people at the city stadium in San Diego. And 25 watts remained the standard power rating for all public address systems well into the 1950s. It was the rock generation who upped the stakes. In 1959, the British company Jennings Industries created their now famous Vox AC30, specifically at the request of the Shadows, who needed more headroom. Eight years later, Jimi Hendrix was routinely plugging into 200, 400, sometimes 800 watts of martial power, and by 1970, the Grateful Dead's touring system, assembled by the pioneering sound engineer Bob Heil, was checking in at 20,000 watts. Of course, these huge acoustic horns, although effective enough in parks and stadia, were hardly practical for domestic use. And by the 1920s, more and more people were buying radios and gramophones, and they wanted better quality sound production in their homes. Help came at last in 1924, when Chester Rice and Edward Kellogg patented an improved version of the moving coil loudspeaker replacing the acoustic horn with a specially mounted paper membrane. Not only did this look better, but its reproductive quality was far superior and it took up much less space. Although the basic design has been tweaked since then, its architecture remains the universal standard. In daily speech, when somebody says loudspeaker, this is what they mean. 
A moving coil or dynamic loudspeaker works like this. A coil of wire is wrapped around an electromagnet suspended in the circular gap between the two poles of a permanent magnet. The fluctuating electron flow that arrives from the broadcast end induces corresponding electronic fluctuations in the coil, and these cause the alignment of the magnetic poles to switch rapidly between attract and repel. As the magnets switch, they move the speaker membrane in and out very rapidly, creating patterns of air pressure that we perceive as sound. A loudspeaker is a gateway to another world. I mean that literally, because only a loudspeaker can grant us access to the boundless universe of electrically mediated sound. And that now includes almost all of the music and a great deal of the verbal information that we encounter daily from recordings, radios or concert stages. In fact, almost everything that isn't conversation or a natural environmental sound arrives to our ears through a loudspeaker. They are everywhere, so universal we don't even notice them. Yet a speaker is a miniature miracle a distant cousin to Georges-Louis Borges' Aleph, that impossible point in space that contains all other points, or in the case of speakers, is able to contain. But imagine a world without them. Our extensive access to the audio past would disappear, and our sound horizons would shrink from planet-wide to immediate vicinity. Given the importance of loudspeakers, it was inevitable that musicians and composers would eventually explore their unique affordances, or what you might call the nature of their being beyond their function as a portal or a conduit for something else. And amongst these affordances, one would have to count the way in which speakers disruptively reconfigure scale and space. In an acoustic space, a thing is reliably where it is, in an electric space, it appears to be wherever a loudspeaker is. In the Athenian Agora, Woodrow Wilson would have spoken from where he stood, and he would have been heard only by whoever was in earshot. But at the city stadium in San Diego, he was magically multiplied, and now appeared to speak simultaneously from every position in which a loudspeaker had been placed. Of course, many of his audience could see him on the stage, so at least the eye, if not the ear, could hold to a sense of where he actually was. But if those same loudspeakers had been plugged into a radio set, then Wilson might have been anywhere on the planet. And if they'd been connected to a phonograph record, he wouldn't have been speaking at all, except, impossibly, from the past. And a loudspeaker alone... Can't tell you if that's Woodrow or a recording of Woodrow. So suddenly there's no saying where he is, or even if he's still alive. That has to be, at some deep experiential level, disorientating. Suddenly the laws of natural acoustics no longer apply. When loudspeakers dominate the soundscape, 
the human ear can no longer be trusted to tell us the truth about the world we experience. And this is not so much a sort of ventriloquism as it is an eerie analogue of Descartes' conception of the pineal gland, the sole organ through which a corporeal body can communicate with an incorporeal mind, or, in the case of the loudspeaker, the sole means by which the world of electricity can interface orally with the world of natural acoustics. Neither microphones nor loudspeakers are neutral. Each has its own characteristics and imparts its own way of uttering or hearing to the listener. And although, rhetorically, the history of both devices has always been directed toward ever greater fidelity, ever greater clarity and ever greater separation and transparency, out in the real world, it's the manufacture of hyper-reality that has served them better. That is to say, the quest for more. More volume, more bass, more high frequencies, more separation, more contrast. With the result that loudspeakers, like blockbuster movies, increasingly deliver a world of artifice, which, although it presents itself as the documentation of high-definition reality, is in fact entirely fake. One, two, one, 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 one. Mary had a little lamb, fleece was white as snow. Everywhere Mary went, that lamb was sure to go. One, two, one, one, two. A microphone is not an ear. It's not connected to a brain, it doesn't have experiences, and it isn't equipped with any other senses with which it can contextualise the things it hears. Nor can it focus, as we do, on what's important, or suppress what's unimportant. It's not like us. It hears technically, not subjectively. On the other hand, it's able to listen in ways and places that no ear can match and then it can put our ears right there beside it. As Marshall McLuhan said, it's an electrical extension of the biological human sensorium. In other words, it's a tool with which we can do previously impossible things. In the wee small hours of the morning While the whole wide world is fast asleep You lie awake and think about the girl And never ever think of counting sheep Crooning, for instance, was a direct product of the microphone and it was born not in a public context but out of the microphone amplifier loudspeaker complex. To sing on a stage, except with the smallest ensemble, is a battle for audibility that's why the operatic voice is so stentorian and artificial. 
It's trying to be a trumpet. But under studio conditions, acoustic reality can be discounted because amplitude is made relative and the singer can be as intimate or relaxed or nuanced as emotion demands, allowing personality rather than projection to dominate. Because speaking to a microphone is speaking directly to a listener's ear. Oh, I get to do it. This is an example of the creation. And the day after that, and the day after that, also, at the same time, I get to work with the Velvet Underground, which is a shittier group as Frank Zappa's group. I suspect this understanding arose first in radio stations, where one quickly learns that when one is close to a microphone, the warm, low frequencies are boosted. And as you draw away, thinner, higher frequencies predominate. This gives you control over parameters that were out of reach, that in fact didn't exist before. So good singers quickly learn to play their microphones, especially once they're working with headphones, because hearing one's own voice, as it were, from outside, is a very different thing from experiencing it from the inside, which, before the age of sound recording, was the only way we could hear it. Indeed, what reason would we have even to imagine that we might sound different to other ears until we can become those ears ourselves? Obviously, our amplified or recorded voice should never be mistaken for our real voice. It's just a new voice that we didn't have before. And it's a voice that offers us novel powers and dimensions. Once discovered, these can move from the studio to the stage, or vice versa. For this reason, I was immediately convinced by Philip Tagg's suggestion that Lemmy Kilminster's strained vocal delivery was in large part a product of his having physically to stretch his head upward to sing into a microphone that was always mounted over his head, pointing down at 45 degrees. Try crooning in that position. It's impossible. And compare. There's a saying old says that love is blind. Still we're often told, seek and ye shall find. So I'm going to seek a certain lad I've had in mind. I'd like to add his initials. To my monogram Tell me Where is the shepherd For this Lost lamb There's somebody 
Generally, on stages, microphones are static, while a singer or an instrumentalist moves in relation to them, controlling their tone and amplitude through movement. But there's no rule that says a microphone can't be an active participant in a performance, a technique brilliantly employed by Karl Heinz Stockhausen in his visionary Microphony One, premiered in Brussels in 1964 and scored for Tam Tam, two microphones, two filters, and two potentiometers. It has an instructive history. In 1964, Stockhausen had acquired a huge tam-tam, which, when not in use, was set up in his garden. Using objects gathered from around the house, made of metal, glass, wood, rubber and plastic, and also a set of cardboard tubes, Stockhausen began to experiment with the tam-tam, building up a repertory of novel sounds and techniques. Then, with a highly directional microphone, he began, as he expressed it, to probe the surface of the tam-tam, the way a doctor probes a body with a stethoscope. Out of all this experience, he assembled a catalogue of sounds, categorised according to their associative qualities. These included groaning, trumpeting, whirring, hooting, roaring, grating, chattering, wailing, sawing, ringing, choking, cawing, clacking, snorting, chirping, hissing, grunting, crunching, clinking, tromboning, and scraping. Out of these, he derived a kind of scale that consisted of 36 steps, calibrated from the darkest and lowest to the brightest and highest. Only then did he write the piece. In the final score, two musicians play the tam-tam, two move the microphones following choreographed instructions, and two process the information delivered by the microphones using filters and potentiometers. It's a 27-minute tour de force, and I can only play a very short extract, but I do recommend you search out the full recording. Thank you. 
When he was asked, must it be a tam-tam, Stockhausen said, no, I can imagine this score being used to musically examine an old Volkswagen. And here's another microphone on the move. This one is attached to a recording device that was packed in a parcel and mailed from London to Rome by the sound artist Daniela De Paulis. The 41-and-a-half-hour journey was released as a data CD sound edition of 250 in 2008. I'll play two short extracts. The first sounds rather like a station, and the second probably on a plane. And here's another. This one has been swallowed by the French sound poet Henri Chopin and is on its way through his digestive system. in the main, just as microphones are imagined as passive and expressively neutral devices, so are loudspeakers. They just sit where they're put. That's especially relevant when stereophonic 
quadraphonic and surround sound illusions of dimensionality and motion are created, because these are dependent precisely on there not being any actual dimensionality or motion. This is a relatively new idea, because until the 1950s, a loudspeaker could only project point source information into the world. That is to say, wherever the speaker was, that's where the sound was. It was only with the advent of stereophony that spatiality was able to move out of the acoustic world and in to the psychoacoustic world, a domain in which sounds are no longer where they actually are, but where they appear to be. By feeding different information to the left and right ears, an illusion of depth, movement and lateral position can be reliably induced as a diligent brain, trained and familiar only with the behaviour of sound in the real world, struggles to interpret audio illusions as if they were actually valid spatial information. To create this illusion, it's essential that the loudspeakers themselves do not move and also that they are not heard as individual sound sources. Rather, they become a sort of frame, like a picture frame, that contains a three-dimensional illusion. This aspect of loudspeaker sound, that two, four, five, seven or more of them can be configured to create an enclosed illusory space, or rather a space within a space or a space superimposed upon a space, is something we'll examine more closely in a later programme. Here we'll just restrict ourselves to probes that treat loudspeakers as individual entities or personalities, rather than as invisible frames used to project tricksy audio illusions. Based on the notion of an orchestra, that is, a large collection of different instruments, each with its own unique qualities and each occupying its own unique spatial location, there arose in the electronic music world of the 1960s what you might call orchestras of loudspeakers, the best known being the French Accusmonium, founded in 1974 by Francis Bale. The Accusmonium disposed a variety of different kinds of loudspeakers, between 60 and 100 of them, in varying configurations, sometimes set out like an orchestra on a stage, sometimes placed around or even below and above the listening public. 
These speakers were carefully selected for their individual qualities, and the sounds they relayed were further individuated by their movement from one speaker or one group of speakers to another. Conceived as immersive installations, these speaker orchestras were designed to be animated in real time by composers who imposed spatial and dynamic movement onto the playback of two, four or eight tracks of pre-recorded tapes. In such arrays, the speakers are not intended to be neutral or optimal, but are carefully selected for their differences and personalities to add colour to the listening experience. The claim they lay to the acoustic world is that, as with any live concert, the listener's experience is irreducible and non-reproducible. You have to be there in the room with them. The effect cannot be recorded. What we might call their phenomenological essence is not so much to do with the music they relay as it is with the experiential gestalt that they create in a particular space at a particular time. There's nothing I can play you to illustrate this, and that, of course, is the point. Even before the normalisation of imaginary spaces, most commonly stereophonic space, other multispatial possibilities had been sketched. Back in 1926, Hugo Gernsback's piano rad had been designed to send each note of its two-octave keyboard to a different speaker, and although they were all mounted together on top of the instrument, they could have been distributed in any number of ways around an auditorium or throughout a building. Gernsback himself drew attention to this, although he never actually implemented it. The idea, however, is rich with possibilities, and I must say it surprises me how seldom the world of music has considered them since. Of course, some forms of electronic music use loudspeakers in this distributed way, and it's a common feature of many sound installations, a field in which different ways of working with point source sound are common. An excellent example is Janet Cardiff's 2001 installation, 40-part motet. The motet in question is Thomas Tallis's Spem in Allium, a remarkable work written in the late 16th century for 40 separate musical lines, divided between eight separated five-part choirs. Cardiff duplicates this precisely by assigning each of the 40 voices to its own loudspeaker and arranging the 40 speakers in eight groups of five around the listening public, exactly as Tallis had with his choirs almost half a millennium earlier. As with a real choir, the blend of voices happens in the room, and each voice is fixed into its own space. 
the public is left free to move around speakers at will, listening to individuals, groups or the whole ensemble. Again, the experience is unrecordable, but at least I can indicate the nature of the composition and a little of what the visitor might hear. This extract is from a private recording made in the room by a visitor, acting as a visitor might. Point source sound is always a real-world event. No recording can capture it, because obviously one speaker in one place can't duplicate the spatiality of several speakers in several places. Nor can any stereo or surround sound system, however sophisticated. In a point source setup, each speaker is an individual entity. Left. Right. Somewhere in the middle. Like a microphone, a loudspeaker can also be an instrument in its own right, a point brilliantly made by Gordon Monaghan in his classic Speaker Swinging, first performed in 1982. Its genius is its simplicity, and you get a huge result for a modest input. In essence, three athletes... It's a 25-minute piece and very strenuous. Swing three large loudspeakers around their heads on heavy ropes, drawing approximately six or seven-metre diameter circles. The speakers themselves are fed by nine sine and square wave oscillators, and everything else is the product of room acoustics and the highly complex wave patterns, disturbances, cancellations, Doppler effects and reflections of the three independent speaker trajectories and their intersections. Here's a short two-dimensional extract from a performance filmed in 1986. 
but I do recommend that you watch the video because there's a lot more to this piece than just the sound. I've put the video address in the transcript to this program. musicians, many sound artists have proved moving speakers and point source spatialization. They also love loudspeakers for their appearance and their kinetic power, filling them with fluids or feathers or sand, or arranging dozens of tiny loudspeakers in blocks or lines or patterns with sound moving through them, or feeding them with sub-bass frequencies to move them silently, or to make cladney vibration patterns. They may also be employed to make other things move, as they do in Ulrich Eller's 1996 installation, Circle of Drums, for instance, where inaudible sub-bass frequencies activate multiple snare drums in random bursts, each drum tuned differently, with the speaker pressed invisibly to its underside. In the story of amplification, microphone, amplifier and loudspeaker form a codependent triad. The microphone turns acoustic sound into a stream of electrical data, the amplifier magnifies it, and the loudspeaker turns the result back into acoustic sound. But before we look at the many applications of this triad, we should look first at the phenomenon created by and unique to it an effect completely independent of any intentional content, or actually any content at all, and that's feedback, the purest expression of the microphone-amplifier-speaker triad, in which, even with no discernible input, the tiniest disturbance between microphone and loudspeaker, once they are too close to one another, initiates a runaway loop that quickly resolves into a constant howling tone. This introduction to the Beatles' I Feel Fine was no accident. It was there on every take and it marked the first deliberate use of pure feedback on a rock recording. Thinking was changing, in the experimental community too. A few months earlier in America, Robert Ashley had probed the same phenomenon at Charlotte Moorman's Festival of the Avant-Garde in New York, with his highly influential performance work, The Wolfman. This involved setting up the auditorium with a PA system pushed to the edge of feedback, 
and then having the performer use his mouth, vocal cords and a microphone to modulate the feedback in the room. There's also a tape track of found sounds added to the performance to create further variations. In life, the sound is bouncing off every surface and there's great complexity and directionality, so once again, it's an unrecordable experience. But the recording gives the gist. In similar spirit, four years later, the British composer Hugh Davis premiered his quintet for five performers, five microphones and six loudspeakers. Four of the speakers are set at the corners of a square, with one performer facing each. The fifth performer and the last two speakers stand in the centre. The performers are directed only to move their microphones as indicated in the score, to initiate, modulate and, as far as possible, control the feedback that's induced between the microphones and the speakers.
In the same year, the American composer Steve Reich produced his systems music performance piece, Pendulum Music. Here, four microphones are suspended by their cables and set in motion to swing above four horizontal loudspeakers that are facing upwards, creating momentary feedback as they cross. Alvin Lussier's 1975 work, Bird and Person Dining. The dining here refers to heterodining, which is what happens when two almost identical high frequencies create a third lower frequency. It's the engine of the theremin, the Onde Martineau, and countless other monophonic electronic instruments. In Lussier's piece, the heterodining occurs between a novelty electric bird call and the feedback created between a binaural microphone worn on the head of a solo performer and a pair of loudspeakers set up on the stage in order to find the lower tones. The performer has to control the feedback by moving his or her body and head in response to what they hear. Everything that happens in this piece depends entirely on the conditions of the room, so every performance is interactive and experimental, a matter of responding immediately to what emerges in the space, creating a kind of double feedback nexus that mixes electroacoustics with cybernetics.
but it was when the microphone's place in the generative triad was taken by the newly invented magnetic pickup that feedback became fully integrated into musical discourse. episode, we'll be slipping back into the 1920s and the quest to electrify the guitar, because it was these probes that led not only to the first experiments with dedicated amplification for individual instruments, but also to the invention of the magnetic pickup and the emergence for the first time of a hybrid electronic instrument, not designed from scratch like the theremin or the Onde Martino but created through the electrification of an existing instrument with entirely unexpected consequences. It's the story of how a simple quantitative change, more volume, set in motion a complicated qualitative change, giving birth to an entirely new instrument, the electric guitar. As a bridge from here to there, I'll close with an extract from Neil Young's 35-minute feedback masterclass, ARC, much loved by the few and greatly denigrated by the many when it was first released in 1991 as the dark companion to his straight-ahead live rock double album, Weld.
I'm Chris Cutler. This has been Probes. Thank you.